0: I was sitting in church more than 20 years ago, and as I listened to the sermon being preached I slowly came to the realization that I had heard it all before. I mean the exposition, the application. Even the personal illustrations that were given, the preacher was preaching someone else's sermon. Plagiarism. Sermon stealing has been in the news of late in America. Of course, there's never any any, any excuse for the laziness, the dishonesty, the abdication of one's responsibility as a teacher of God's Word. But you know, there is one exception to that rule. Actually, today I'm going to preach someone else's sermon. After all, that's what the book of Deuteronomy is Moses' best sermon. Deuteronomy is Moses' last sermon. Please turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. This is the fifth book in the Bible, and you will be helped, maybe especially today, by keeping the Bible open on your lap. Somebody said Deuteronomy wouldn't make a very good action movie because the only thing that happens is that Moses dies. Everything else is a lengthy exhortation. So there the people were in in, uh, the people of Israel, assembled on the plains of Moab, on the eastern side of the Jordan River, poised to enter into this promised land. Now a whole generation had fallen in uh, previous years. And that's because after God's supernatural deliverance of these people from Egypt... They had revolted against God. They tried to go back to Egypt. And as a result, God condemned them in the desert to a 40-year period of wandering during which, one by one, the old generation fell away. So here, the new generation was poised to enter into what God called their inheritance. But of course, Moses would not go with them we have seen over the last few weeks that because of his own sin and because he was identified with his previous generation as their mediator, he would not enter into the promised land. So how would the people carry on after their great mediator was gone? How would the people survive without Moses? Three ways. Three ways. First, by hearing God's words. Second, by heeding God's warnings. And thirdly, by hoping in God's promises. Those are the three points of the sermon this morning. Hearing, heeding, and hoping. It is in this way that you and I will enter the ultimate promised land. First, by hearing God's words. You see that in verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them, that you may live and go in and take possession of the land the Lord, the God of your fathers, has giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. So it was not enough to hear God's words and remember them, It was not enough to hear them and understand them. It wasn't enough to hear them and debate over them. What it says here is, listen and do them. And that is the repeated refrain throughout the whole of this chapter. Look at verse 5. Verse 5. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it keep them, and do them. Or look down at verse 14. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you were going over to possess. True hearing involves doing. Obeying. God's Word is not for our intellectual stimulation. God's Word is not for our clinical consideration. It is to be obeyed. Obedience, then, is the hallmark of the true people of God. Now, it's not that they earned their relationship with God. Far from it. Obedience was something different. It was a response to what God had already done for them in delivering them from slavery in Egypt, in establishing a covenant relationship. Now, they would demonstrate their loyalty to Him through... Obeying his words. And this was the way that the people would enter into the blessing of the promised land. Now, was that only true for them back then? Or is it also true for us? What did our Lord say in Luke 6? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Sadly, many churches teach that salvation is kind of like a COVID vaccination. It's a dose of forgiveness that at least supposedly inoculates from the fires of hell, but little else. No other transformative properties to that vaccination. Because you walk down the aisle, because you signed a card or raised your hand. Supposedly, you'll be delivered from the fires of hell. Pray these words, follow these steps. It's kind of like the children's evangelistic program Donuts and Decisions. The idea is, you know, attract the kids with the donuts and then procure decisions. But the true believer will not only hear the word, he will actually do what it says. So it's the difference between merely reading a menu and actually enjoying the meal. As James says in the New Testament... Be doers of the word, and not hearers only. So, how are you hearing? Is your life characterized by doing, by obedience? You know, George Swinnick said, when the sermon is at an end, that's not the end of the sermon. When the preacher is done in the pulpit, then the hearer must begin. So, it's over to you. And I would add that even during the sermon, is a a vital time of responsibility on the part of both preacher and congregation, that we be engaging, praying together, worshiping, resolving to obey what He has said. So it's not just enough, my friends, to come on Sundays to church. I would suggest that you should be a member of a local church. And here's why. Not just for your joy or... The friendships that are involved, or the shared sense of ownership of being participants in that covenant that we will affirm later, but for your own spiritual protection. We know that we're sinners. We can be self deceived, and so the members of UCCD have covenanted together to exercise watchfulness over each other. We know we can easily lose track, and we need others in our lives to call us back to obedience. Now, I'm not saying that Christians are perfect in their obedience. Far from that. But here's what I am saying. We have a desire to obey. We have a disposition to embrace and to love the authority of Scripture. So think of the local church as a fruit inspection cooperative. That's why in two weeks we will have our membership weekender. So if you have been attending here for a while, you consider this to be your home church here in Dubai. Well, come along Saturday, February 12, at 9.30 in the morning. We will have a a membership matters weekend or from 9.30 to 12.30. That'll be a great way for you to get to know the most important things about us as a church, what we believe, how we promise to live, our leadership. That's the first step toward becoming a member of this church. And I would invite, I would encourage all of you folk who are not members to come. Check that out. There's no, uh, no, um, you're not promising to become a member but I think you will benefit from the teaching there. Now, what's the result of the life of obedience that Moses is calling us to? It's in verse 1. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you and do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land. Now, that means more than that you may survive there or that you may... Stay alive while you're there in the promised land. No, this is referring to a life of abundance, to enjoy God's blessing in the land that he had promised them. This was Moses' aim as he preached to that massive assembly on the plains of Moab. Obedience would lead to blessing. Look at verse 40. Verse 40, Therefore you shall keep his statutes and his commandments which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. And somehow, a whole community transformed by this would become evangelistically appealing to the watching world. Look at verse 6. Keep them and do them, Moses says, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the people's who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us, whenever we call upon Him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Well, there was no nation like that. Only Israel, utterly unique. They were great, not in terms of military prowess, not necessarily in terms of size or wealth, but in wisdom and understanding. This would be a witness to the nations. The whole world was watching, and the Bible was anticipating a day when Israel would become like a magnet to the nations. As in Isaiah 60, Nations shall come to your light, kings to the brightness of your rising. So verses 6 to 8 are kind of a foreshadowing of the modern missions movement. How would Israel do that? By obeying God's word. By showing God's character stamped on them, living in such a way that God was near to them, obviously. Of course, it never happened. Not fully. But all of this anticipated a day when God's people would all be powerfully transformed from the inside out. Friends, this must be true of us. If we have a hunger for God's words, and if we have a growing resolve to obey them, we will be the fragrant witness that Moses is describing in verse 6. We will stand out instead of fading back into the background of Dubai. Too often, of course, that's what churches do. As Nigel Lee once said of churches, we become so much like unbelievers... They have no questions they want to ask us. I think that's a problem with the seeker-sensitive movement. You know, we we morph into the world in such a way that we're no longer distinct. We're no longer particularly interesting. In fact, we should make people constructively curious, kind of like a storefront display, so that preaching makes the gospel audible, but the three-dimensional life of a church sacrificially loving one another makes the gospel visible, compelling, different. So here was the new generation. Moses was teaching them God's words, and obedience to these words was vital if they were to survive and thrive. Look at verse 2. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Well, that's because these words that Moses was giving them were utterly unique. They were coming to them with absolute divine authority. Some of them etched in stone by the finger of God. Others proclaimed by the prophet. They all had divine authority. So no adding, no subtracting from the law. It's interesting that there's a similar warning at the end of the whole Bible. You know the last chapter of Revelation? Last chapter of Revelation, you can look at this later, it says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of this book of prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Well, this is a warning to all of us not to evade God's word, not to water it down, or modify it. Instead, we must believe His words and do them. I know the American president, Thomas Jefferson, tried to cut out the parts he disliked. That was cutting. I know some Charismatics and Roman Catholics, well, they add to Revelation, either by saying God told me outside of the Scriptures or claiming church tradition on an equal par, as a source of revelation, equal to the Bible. The point is, God governs us by His Word and His Word alone. So the Scripture is sufficient. Ours is a faith once for all entrusted to the saints, Jude 3. Well, that's what we affirmed in our statement of faith today. You know, we we affirmed what we believe about the Bible there in your bulletin. what we said was God has revealed Himself in the Bible which consists solely of the 66 books of the Old and New Testament. So there will be no more additions to the canon of Scripture. None will be taken away. The canon is closed. Now some object to this and say what you're doing when you say that is that the Holy Spirit is no longer active today. But that would be a mistaken notion because the Holy Spirit is still working through those 66 books. They're called the sword of the Spirit. So the Spirit illuminates His Word. He enables us to understand and to apply it. So never allow anyone to drive a wedge between the Lord and His Word. John Frame said, When we encounter the Word of God, we encounter God. When we we encounter God, we encounter His Word. God's Word and His presence are inseparable. Whenever God's Word is spoken, read, or heard, God Himself is there. So anytime that you hear a biblical sermon, it's not like you're watching TV. You're not scrolling through Instagram, seeking to be titillated or entertained passively. Now, when we hear a biblical sermon... We're not so much sitting in judgment of God's Word as God's Word is sitting in judgment on us. His Word, His personal presence, which is why it's so amazing that Israel could possibly forget what God had said and done. Look at verse 9. Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen. Unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children how on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children so. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but you saw no form. There was only a voice. And He declared to you His covenant, which He commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments. And He wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land you were going over to possess. Notice that it was an assembly, verse 10. God said, gather the people. Well, it's just like us in this room today. I mean, This is how God has always worked through the assemblage of His people. How did Deuteronomy begin? Chapter 1, verse 1. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan. Or the generation earlier at Horeb also known as Mount Sinai, same thing. One people gathered in one place. Not multiple services. Not virtual church. No, it was the whole assembly. So Israel at Sinai was a prototype for what we're doing right now. The assembly of God's people on the Lord's Day. Christopher Ashe said, Israel is not a collection of individuals who sometimes assemble. It is an assembly whose members may sometimes be dispersed. In our individualistic age, I think people are beginning to downplay the, the significance of the gathering. So, Christopher Ashe spoke critically of a cell, church, a cell group in a cell church where my primary loyalty is to the cell or to the so-called youth church, where I gather with people like me. And people suggested to Ash that, well, the same thing was said to Paul in the first century. It would be more comfortable, wouldn't it, to have one assembly for the Jews and another for the Gentiles. Why do we need to assemble all together like that? Well, the answer is because the local church gathering is a foreshadowing, a foretaste, of the time when all redeemed humanity will gather in the presence of God. So God gathered them. And what they saw, assembled at Mount Sinai, was nothing short of an audiovisual extravaganza. A mountain on fire, blazing all the way up to the heavens, wrapped in darkness, cloud and gloom, sensory overload to be sure. And yet, it was the audio that mattered most. God revealed Himself not by vision, so much as by voice. Look at verse 12. Very interesting verse. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. They had been called together by the Word of God to hear the Word of God. I mean, what if God had remained silent that day? What if God had just withdrawn and left Israel in their sins without hope? But He spoke, and as terrifying as it was, and as it did contain an element of discipline, yet it was for their good. Verse 10 in the middle of the verse, Let them hear my words so that they might learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth. Friends, we need no further data. We need no image or imagination. God has spoken. He has revealed Himself in true and living words. And this is why we as a congregation must be committed to telling people. God has revealed Himself in words. He can be explained to others. Our job as followers of Jesus is to open our mouths, tell the truth. You know, your godly example alone will never save anyone. Because faith comes through hearing. Well, this should affect how we worship on Sundays. You know, when the people assembled that day at Mount Sinai, and when they saw God's glory, and when they heard His voice like that, no one was there taking worship selfies. No one was casual in God's presence. No one on this occasion was insisting on their own preferences. Uh, I like old hymns. No, I prefer modern worship songs. I want more relevant sermons. I want more upbeat musical accompaniment. No, Exodus tells us that they trembled, and Moses trembled. You speak to us, Moses, and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. These people feared God, but there was a problem. Verse 9. Take care lest you forget the things your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart. They were prone to forgetfulness. Could that be said of any of you? Is anyone here prone to forget the things of God? Maybe you enjoy an inspiring time of corporate worship, but then you go your way, and on Monday and Tuesday you're, you're forgetful. It's like you're a functional atheist someone might react and object by saying well I've not been to Mount Sinai and I've not seen a burning mountain or quaking fire from heaven but actually friends you and I have an even greater revelation than they did we saw in Hebrews 12 we've come not to Mount Sinai we've come to Mount Zion the city of the living God and to Jesus the mediator mediator of a new covenant so the whole law was leading us toward Christ and His finished work. He is the true temple fulfillment. So if you want to meet with God, go to Christ. He is the ultimate sacrificial lamb. The great high priest, Edmund Clowney, said, Our worship is not less supernatural than the experience of Israel in the wilderness. It is infinitely more so. We have emerged from the shadows into the reality. But just like them, on the plains of Moab... We need regular reminders of basic Christian truths. This is why we meet weekly as a church. This is why if you absent yourself from church for weeks on end, you will not do well spiritually. I mean, this is why we partake of the Lord's Supper today. If we don't do things that God has told us to do in order to cultivate a memory, an affection of what God has done for us in Christ, then our hearts will grow cold and distant. We'll lose interest. We'll shrivel up on the vine. So these are reminders as we assemble here to stir us up, to continue in the faith. And God wanted these people to remember the great Old Testament act of redemption, deliverance from slavery. And He wants you and me to remember the even greater act of redemption, deliverance from sin. You saw no form. There was only a voice. So God's Word is what has created us as a church. It created us 50 years ago. It has preserved us for the last several decades. Someone said the church is the crater formed by the impact of God's Word. So the fact that we are here is proof positive of the truth and power of the speech of God. So our final authority as evangelicals, it is not church tradition. It is not subjective experience. It is not human reason. The Bible must be central in our affections, in our gatherings, regardless of all the talk about nonlinear thinking and shortened attention spans. Kevin Kevin DeYoung was right. We must resist the urge to get on with the spirit of the age. We must feed our people with more than a steady diet of video clips and sermonettes. Well, that's because the way we will inherit the promised land is by hearing God's words. And secondly, by heeding God's warnings. Heeding His warnings. Even as they were poised, prepared to enter the promised land. Do you know that judgment was still a possibility, even in those moments? In fact, it had happened only recently. Look at verse 3, what Moses recounted. In verse 3, Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor. For the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. Baal was a Canaanite god whose worship involved temple prostitution and sexual immorality. It was a fertility cult. It worked like this. The idea was the gods in heaven will imitate the people below on earth. And so sexual immorality taking place in the temple would encourage the same thing in the heavens, which would yield abundant harvests. That's what happened here. Some Israelite men betrayed God. And they engaged in sexual immorality with Midianite women right there on the border of the promised land bringing a whole plague on the people of Israel. As it says in verse 3, the Lord your God destroyed all of them. But verse 4, you who held fast to the Lord are still alive today. So that group he was addressing, they were the survivors. They were the ones who had feared God, remained faithful. And so Moses warned all of the people solemnly, don't go native. Don't corrupt yourselves. Look at verse 15. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away, and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has alerted to all, allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of His own inheritance, as you are to this day. Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me because of you. And he swore that I should not cross the Jordan and that I should not enter the good land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. For I must die in this land. I must not go over the Jordan. But you shall go over and take possession of that good land. Take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God which he made with you and make a carved image the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. idols compared the Creator to something created. Animals, winged birds, sun and moon. Here's the difference. The idols are seen, but they don't speak. God is not seen, and yet we hear His words. So the idols belittled God. They domesticated or minimized Him. As John Calvin said, His glory is defiled. His truth corrupted by the lie, whenever He's set before our eyes in visible form. Hence the warnings, verse 23, take care. Verse 15, watch yourself very carefully. The true God is omnipresent, omnipotent, infinite in all of His perfections in such a way that images cannot begin to capture Him. So, brothers and sisters, let's never look to pictures or icons to stir our hearts to worship the living God who is incomparable. It's His glory that pictures can never show us. But it's not just carved idols. It's idols of the heart. Martin Luther said, if a man will not have God, he must have his idols. And the idea there was that we're all worshipers by nature. We're going to worship something. Either God or it will be a substitute. So anything that is uppermost in your affections, anything that you desire that is more important to you than God, that's your idol. What is that thing for you? Let's just pause here for a moment. What is the thing that is uppermost in your affections that vies for, uh, competes for supremacy with the living God? Anything can become an idol, even good things like family, ministry, morality. What is that one thing? If you could just get that, then you would have security and satisfaction and significance. Paul Tripp said, We still hunt for God replacements, we still look horizontally for what we will only ever find vertically. Maybe it's material possessions to make you happy. Maybe it's the allure of a romantic relationship with someone forbidden to you. Maybe our children give us identity. Maybe food and drink satisfy and calm us. Maybe physical appearance gives us self-esteem. You know, the first thing, the first step to removing your idols is to identify them. So this is what you should talk about at your care life groups this week and over lunch today. So what are your idols? What are mine? We're all sinners. We all have them, I guarantee you. Why are the stakes so high, though? Why must we be so careful to avoid idols? Well, that's verse 24. Look down at that verse. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. This might be one of those verses that Thomas Jefferson cut out of his Bible. I know, maybe you're uncomfortable with the idea of a jealous God. It doesn't really comport with what you think of God or what you would prefer. I mean, what would you like? Would you like to have a God who doesn't care? Don Carson asks, what is God supposed to say? Oh, make up your own spirituality as you go along. Invent your own God. I don't really care. But that would be a denial of who He is. He's the great rescuer. He is so worthy of our allegiance. He delivered them out of the iron furnace. He delivered the believers here today out of eternal condemnation. So shall God now say, but you can pretend some other power did it. I don't care. Go make your own gods. No, this is a God who is richly deserving of absolute loyalty. So jealousy is the proper attitude of, say, a man whose wife is threatened by the overture of another man. And so, just like marriage, Israel's relationship to God was one of exclusive covenant loyalty. And what would happen if they jilted him? What would happen if they betrayed him? Look at verse 25. Verse 25. When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, If you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you're going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in numbers among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see, nor hear, nor eat, nor smell. Obedience would mean blessing, but disloyalty would mean scattering. Notice that. The the scattering-gathering motif here. Disloyalty scatters them, just like at, at Babel. Genesis chapter 11, you remember when God confused the languages of the rebellious nations and scattered them all over the face of the globe so here false worship results in scattering exile outside the promised land and when you keep reading through the old testament well that's exactly what happened it's almost as though Moses knew that these people would be disloyal in fact later today go home read read Deuteronomy 32 Moses's song at the end of Deuteronomy where Moses predicts the defection of Israel. It's almost as if a new covenant would be needed, one in which the human heart would be transformed. Friends, we should heed God's warnings, lest He come in judgment against us. The only way that you and I can ever enter into that good land flowing with milk and honey is if we hear God's words and heed His warnings. And one more thing, and this is, this is the important thing, Well, they're all important, but hope in God's promises. Hope in His promises. You see, exile was inevitable for these people. Sin would have its consequences, but that wasn't the end. In the midst of all the brokenness of the history of Israel, there was still hope. Look at verse 29. But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find Him. From where? He's speaking of exile. From Babylon from the other nations you will seek him and find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul when you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice for the Lord your God is a merciful God he will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them in judgment God scatters But in salvation, he gathers, verse 30, you will return to the Lord, regathered to the promised land. The day was coming when God's people would search after him with their whole heart, supernaturally enabled to obey his voice. And when would this happen? Does it tell us in verse 30 when? In the latter days. In days to come, God would break in with saving power. In the latter days, they would change not only their outward behavior, but their inner motivation and attitude, cleansed, transformed. And here's the difference between us as a Christian church and Old Testament Israel. The Old Covenant said this stay away, set limits around the mountain, stay back. The New Covenant in Jesus Christ says draw near. You are invited to come into the immediate presence of God. And here's why. In the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, he bore the penalty of his people so that the condemnation, the hostility between us and and God was removed, allowing us to run into the presence of God. Jesus was, in some sense, separated from the Father, he was forsaken, cursed, so that we might be gathered to God reconciled to Him through faith in His Son. This is the good news. You know, John's Gospel, in chapter 11, it uh, describes a plot against Jesus' life. And uh, the religious leaders, they were beside themselves because the crowds were attracted to Jesus more than them. They were envious. And at the urging of the high priest, they actually conspired to murder the Christ. One man in the place of the whole nation. And John tells us this in John 11. The high priest prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only. But also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So in the death of Jesus Christ, he is reassembling the one people of God. So now, not just some of us, all of us have unqualified access into the very presence of the living God. It's like Ray Ortland explained. For us sinners, God is both high voltage danger and overflowing salvation. And the only refuge we have from his holy wrath is his holy love in Christ, our substitute on the altar of the cross. In other words, the only escape from God is in God. So in Christ, we have admission to the ultimate promised land, we have an inheritance. A salvation beyond our wildest imagination. Look at verse 32. For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth. And ask from one, one end of heaven to another, whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire, as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by the great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt, before your eyes? Well, the answer to these questions is no. This has never happened in all human history. It is unprecedented in the annals of the past ever since God created man on the earth, nothing remotely approaching this has ever occurred. Why did God do it? What was His purpose? Look at verse 35. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other beside Him. Out of heaven He let you hear His voice that He might discipline you. And on earth He let you... See his great fire, and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose your offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in to give you their land for an inheritance as it is to this day, know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. So, God spoke to them that day, out of the fire, and it wasn't just so that they could acquire more information or make an A on a test that would be administered. No, it was personal. They were engaging with the living God, and He was introducing themselves to them on the mountain as the only God and the loving God. Notice that here in this little section. The only God... And the loving God. Israel had encountered not just any God. He was the only God. Verse 35. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other beside Him. This means Krishna is not God. And Buddha is not God. And the God of Mormonism is not God. The Lord alone is God. I know that Oprah Winfrey disagrees with this. She has said, one of the biggest mistakes people make is to believe that there is only one way. Actually, she says, there are many diverse paths leading to what you call God. And that may be a very popular opinion in the West. And it may be the majority view in some of the university classrooms here in Dubai. But not here in Deuteronomy. Here is the only God, a warrior, who would fight the battles of his people. He had done so before, he would do so again. So if you were there, assembled, around Moses, prepared to enter the promised land, why would you be fearful about your enemies? Why would you concern yourself about them? He's the only God. And not only that, he's a loving God. Look at verse 37. And because He loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with His own presence by His great power. Well, this just explains the basis of the whole law of Moses. It's that God had set His love on Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And He chose these people on the plains of Moab because of God's generous, self-giving expression of love motivating Him to bless the whole world through this family. And He wanted to be with them, it says, Verse 37, with his own presence. And so he called it an inheritance. They would be with him. Look at verse 40. Therefore you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God has given you for all time. Of course, this promised land pointed forward to something greater. Ash said, this land is a scale model and signpost to the new creation. So as we keep reading through Scripture, the promised land takes on greater and greater significance. It's escalated, ratcheted up. If you are in Christ, if you have repented and put your faith in Jesus, then this is pointing you to a restored universe, to a share in the presence of the living God. So don't grow weary at the very borders of the promised land. Friend, are you discouraged? Are are you struggling? Are you fearful of sickness and unemployment and loneliness? Don't turn back. Not now. Samuel Rutherford said, Our fair morning is at hand. The day star is near. It's rising. And we are not many miles from home. What does it matter if we are ill-treated in the smoky ends of this miserable life? One year's time in heaven shall swallow up all sorrows beyond all comparison. This is our hope. Hope in His promises. And so Moses concluded this sermon to the sermon of Deuteronomy. It was his best sermon. This was Moses' last sermon. We've seen that for all of his greatness... For all of his status as the mediator between God and his people, Moses still would not enter into the promised land. And so he said in verse 22, For I must die in this land. I must not go over the Jordan. But the people? Well, he urged the people to listen and to do them that they may live. Moses must die that the people might live. Foreshadowing another mediator who would lay down his life so that the people could enter to the promised land. The question is, will you? Will you enter into the promised land? Have you placed your whole life in the hands of Jesus? Have you turned and trusted in him? This new generation was poised to enter in. But how would they without Moses? The same way we will, by hearing God's words, heeding His warnings, hoping in His promises. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise for these words that you've allowed us to hear. Lord, sometimes they're hard words, but we know ultimately they're a word of grace to us. Our Savior was stern at times, and yet the kindness of our Savior, a bruised reed he would never break, a smoking flax he would never quench. Lord, you are kind and compassionate to us even when we don't deserve it. So we thank you for this word we've been able to reflect upon. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would apply it to our minds and that you would Give us a heart to examine ourselves and to respond to what you're giving us here. Be glorified, Lord, as we partake of the Lord's Supper now. In Jesus' name, amen.